You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments yesterday in a case that could upend decades of legal precedent on a woman's right to choose here in America. Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health is going to determine the constitutionality of a Mississippi law that prohibits virtually all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. It could also very well determine the fate of Roe v. Wade, as well as Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the two landmark decisions that have guaranteed reproductive rights since 1973 and 1992. My next guest says yesterday's oral arguments in the case made it clear that this court, with its newly cemented conservative majority, will likely overturn those past decisions. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Dahlia, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good to be back with you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So give us a quick overview of what we heard yesterday and why you think oral arguments have really confirmed the notion that this court is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, I think going into arguments, it was clear that the court kind of had two paths. One, as you noted in your opening, you know, this is a 15-week ban in Mississippi. There are similar bans around the country. Uh, Those bans are always unerringly struck down, even by conservative courts, because the rule after Roe v. Wade, and that was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992, is that pre-viability bans, if it's an all-out ban, it is unconstitutional, and viability is currently set at about 24 weeks pregnancy. So a 15-week ban, that's not close. The way a lot of folks thought this would go is that the court wouldn't necessarily put the sort of legitimacy of Casey and Roe on the line. They would just move that viability line. Mm -hmm. They would say, oh, science has changed and, you know, we've got better science and we can detect fetal pain. You know, there's a lot of ways to frame it, but that that uh, 15-week marker is okay. And that's, I think, the position that Chief Justice John Roberts, and we've talked about this before, he's the incrementalist, he's the institutionalist. That's what he was trying to kind of muster some enthusiasm for at argument yesterday. Um, I, I don't think I'm alone when I say he had zero takers in that enterprise <laughs> to do a kind of narrow fiddling with the viability line. I think it was fairly clear that the other five conservatives on the court were really there to have a conversation about overturning Roe and Casey. Mm. So I, I want to talk a little more about those arguments and, and what that will mean. But I also want to stop for a second and talk about the fact that we heard from Justice Tom, Clarence Thomas uh, yesterday, which is not something that always happens in the court. It's something of a rarity. What what did he say and what was the exchange that he had uh, with the lawyers? Well, you know, Thomas has been famously silent mm-hmm. in all his years on the court, and that actually changed in COVID. When the court went to telephonic oral arguments, mm-hmm. Justice Thomas started to talk, and he talks at every argument. And in fact, the justices, as a matter of courtesy, allow him to ask the first question. <laughs> so one of the really interesting things about post-COVID Clarence Thomas 
is that he's incredibly deeply engaged uh, <laughs> in oral arguments. Uh, the thing that he was, I think, most focused on uh, with the attorneys uh, who represented both the clinic in Mississippi uh, and the uh, federal government is that he really wanted to make a point of saying there's just no constitutional hook for the right to abortion. And mm. he would sort of say, is this about privacy? Is this about autonomy? Like, where is this right located? Name the provision in the Constitution. Essentially, I think, calling into question all of what's called sort of substantive due process, all of the bucket of legal protections around privacy that go to LGBTQ rights and the right to use contraception. I think what he was trying to press on is that was just made up out of thin air. Show me where it is in the Constitution. And, and in many ways, that connects to lots of other arguments that we have about the sh- scope and the limits of individual rights and, and, and privacy in this country. I, I thought that when I read his comments, it was it was a, a sort of broadening of of the argument here to things that I, I think many other Americans might not even think are in question at the court. Yeah, I think for folks who are listening carefully the way you were, what was alarming is hearing the court simultaneously say, oh, Roe is bad precedent. There, you know, it's, it's from 1973. It's not that old. Science has changed. Everybody hates it. It shouldn't be binding, but then assert that things like Griswold versus Connecticut, you know, the right to use contraception in your marriage, or, you know, as you say, Lawrence versus Texas, which first protected same-sex relationships, and then Obergefell, which finally found a right for gay marriage, all of those things. The court, the conservative justices were saying, oh, no, we're not talking about those things. Those are real precedent. But, of course, these are the same justices who, at their confirmation hearings, each and every one of them said, no, Roe is binding precedent. Roe is good law. You know, Roe Roe is the law of the land. And so I think it raises this question of if you can willy-nilly decide that Roe is no longer binding precedent and you can overturn it, why aren't all those other cases that are rooted, as you say, in that right to privacy, family autonomy, dignity, you know, liberty, all of those kind of bucket of 14th Amendment rights, Hmm. they too must be on the table. And I think it raises this question of where does this end? Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. We're talking about oral arguments yesterday in a pretty important abortion case out of Mississippi. Uh, Dahlia says that this could be the end of the Roe v. Wade precedent that has stood since 1973 as a protection of women's abortion rights. Uh, Dahlia, I want to talk just a little about what would happen in practical terms if the court did uh, effectively overturn Roe. We would go back to a world where states had much more say over, uh, over abortion rights. But what would that look like? in the different states uh, in the union? 
Well, I, I think one place to start is just recognizing that in some sense, even without the court doing anything, we're already creeping into that realm, right? States like Mississippi that is at issue here only has one clinic left. There mm-hmm. are several states that only have one clinic left. Um, you know, the average American woman in some of those states has to drive hours and hours even to get to the one clinic. So sort of by hook and by crook, we're already getting there. But you're quite right. If the court were to say, as Brett Kavanaugh was positing, we're not going to say the Constitution bans abortion. We're not going to say it permits abortion. We're going to let the states decide. Then that's exactly right. We revert to the, the pre-Roe world in which states like California and New York and increasingly you know, Virginia and other purple states will have more and more abortion uh, uh, access. And, you know, states, particularly states, I have to say, with the worst maternal and infant um, mortality rates Mm -hmm. and and, uh, health rates are going to just have all their clinics shuttered. So I think maybe the best answer is what we have seen in Texas since SB8. That was the bill that went into effect uh, on the first day of September, where after six weeks, nobody can procure abortion. And that is still the law in Texas. That's what you're going to see around the country, where the very luckiest, wealthiest pregnant people will be able to go to Oklahoma and maybe get uh, an abortion out of state. But that huge numbers of people will either be attempting self-abortions, they will be going to Mexico and trying to procure uh, drugs, uh, or they'll be carrying to term against their will. And I think what you're going to really see is a reversion to a country in which, you know, wealthy women, Justice Ginsburg would always say, will always be able to get an abortion. (laughs) Uh, But the women who most desperately need them, women of color, uh, poor people who can't travel, uh, immigrants who can't necessarily um, freely cross state lines, they're going to lose all access. And I think that's probably where, as I said, even absent this decision, some of the states are headed. I think we will hurdle to that. There are 22 states (laughs) that will make it immediately impossible to get an abortion. Mm. And indeed here in Michigan, we even have one of the most restrictive anti-abortion laws on the books. And if Roe were to go away, that would uh, that would be the law here uh, as well. I, before we have to end, I want to ask you about the potential reaction to this. The, the, the court counts on public confidence to maintain its authority as an institution. Does that confidence get eroded if a precedent this big gets overturned. You know, that is without a doubt the sort of meta conversation around this case. Uh, when the court heard Casey in 1992 and reaffirmed Roe, the thing they decided, and this was an improbable three Republican appointees, Justice Kennedy, Souter, and O'Connor, decided to save Roe largely because they said we cannot just reverse precedent because of politics. We cannot say the composition of the court drives how we, you know, do law. And all of Casey was a long meditation on the legitimacy of the court. The court decided to save Roe. So I think all of those questions are resurfaced. We've now got the court polling lower than it has ever polled, you know, in the the 40s. and, and I think that there's a great anxiety that the justices feel that public confidence has really eroded in the court. And so you're completely right. All three of Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor yesterday raised the specter of how can we possibly say the court uh, is legitimate if the 
only reason we upheld abortion in 2020 in the June medical case and strike it down uh, in 2022 Mm. uh, is because Amy Coney Barrett replaced uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We can't do that. Justice um, Sotomayor described it as the stench of, uh, you know, the, the court as a political institution. And I think those are the issues that the justices are going to be thinking about really hard is how far can they push public confidence that the court is a neutral, apolitical uh, institution in a moment where public confidence is already pretty dubious about that. Hmm. Okay. Dahlia Lithwick, uh, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. It's always really great to have you here to unpack what happens at the court for us. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and my heart really goes out to all the folks uh, in Michigan who are suffering right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. We're going to talk about schools here in Metro Detroit that are doing a much better job than others with students of color and low-income students. We're going to hear from an administrator for one of those schools and an education advocate about what they're doing right.